Today's episode of Lions of Liberty is sponsored by Ammo.com, and as you might have guessed, they sell, that's right, ammunition, which is great and all, but the company is also run by fans of this program, by liberty lovers like yourself, and they want to give back to fans of this show by offering $20 off any order over $200. Not only that, but they will redirect 1% of the profits from your purchase to a pro-freedom organization. So not only can you save money, but you can rest well knowing you're supporting a great liberty cause. So head on over over to ammo.com forward slash Lions of Liberty to take advantage of this very special offer. You can also click the link in today's show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash 367. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Liberty lovers, and welcome back to your favorite and quite possibly the only libertarian variety show out there, Lions of Liberty. This is your flagship program, which you hear without fail every single Monday when I bring you interviews with great leaders in the libertarian movement, as well as the occasional fun, sometimes drunken roundtable like you heard last week on our five-year anniversary special. Yes, we've been doing this podcast for five friggin' ears. Oh my god. Time really flies, and it's really quite frightening, to be honest with you, because in many ways it feels like yesterday, and in many ways it feels like it has been, um, well, years, <laughs> because it has. And I've just interviewed so many people and learned so much in that time and developed such an amazing following of fans, many of whom now support us on Patreon, who have joined the Lions of Liberty Pride by going over to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty, where for as little as $5 per month, they get to support this show, as well as listen to so much extra bonus content, whether it's Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, which is really mostly us BSing and telling old college stories, as well as bonus segments with guests and so much more, even the monthly or so League of Liberty podcast that I do with my good friends Roger Paxton, Johnny Adams, and Chris Spangle. So just no shortage of content Check it all out by heading over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. And of course, it's not just me here on Mondays on the flagship show. We also have Brian McWilliams slapping you right in the face with his extra explicit dose of comedy, culture, and liberty every single Wednesday on Electric Liberty Land. Be sure to hide the kids for that one, folks. And John Odermatt wraps things up every single Friday with his hard-hitting look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. Be sure to check all that great stuff out by just hitting that subscribe button, whether it's on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever it is you listen to podcasts, you want to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the great stuff coming, including today's interview. So why don't we just get right to it? My guest today is a Libertarian Party activist since 2009, having worked in both in Arizona and New York, as well as at the national level. She is currently running a write-in campaign for state mine inspector in Arizona, and she has recently declared her candidacy for the Libertarian Party's presidential nomination in 2020. She is the one and only Miss Kim Ruff. Kim, are you ready to roar? I'm ready, meow. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Now, Kim, I got to be honest with you. Normally, I start off the show by asking people the typical questions about how they first became a libertarian, how they got interested in the ideas of liberty. And I do plan to do that with you in just a moment. But I just I just can't bury the headline here. I can't bury the lead. I normally don't really get into personal stuff on the show, but I feel like in this case, it's somewhat relevant. Would you care to inform the listeners of this program of a recent change in your relationship status? Uh, yes. <laughs> 
I am engaged to Johnny Adams from Blast Off with Johnny Rocket. Bam! This is where I wish I had the Johnny Rocket like music that's coming right now, <laughs> dramatically come in. Yeah. Well, that is awesome news. Congratulations! It's always Thank fun you. to see to see Liberty uh, blossoming in, in in a romantic way. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, you don't need to get all the way into it, but uh, I mean, it was just not that long ago that uh, Johnny interviewed you, and I think that may or may not have been the first time you spoke. But how did this all come about? You don't need to tell us all, all the nitty gritty details, but you know, give us the the, the public the public elevator version if you don't mind. Oh, it's, it's a re- it is a classic meet cute. I'm, we're mutual friends with Mark Kibler in Washington and Mark, okay, yeah. who's known me for a while, recommended me to blast off for an interview. And so that's how I got in touch with Johnny and Raylene. The first time I spoke to Johnny was maybe two or three days before I was interviewed. And that was just to kind of, Hey, who are you? Who am I? You know, or just to make sure that we had a rapport. So we didn't come in nervous. Right. And then I, proper talk to him on the show. And since being on the interview, I've talked to him almost every single day for many hours. And then he came out and visited me during Labor Day weekend. And that's how this whole thing sort of sparked off. And so here I, we are. Yeah. So I owe like three or four people honey cured hams. As thank well, you. that's amazing stuff. And, and I feel like having the rocket power behind your campaign is really going to give you a boost. <laughs> and you now kidding? you're about to get the Lions of Liberty bump. So you're really picking up steam already. <laughs> I personally think he's hitching his wagon to my star, which is cute. <laughs> Ouch. All <laughs> no, right. I'm well, kidding. Johnny's awesome. Everything he does is really great. I'm endlessly impressed with what he does. Well, yeah, of course, Johnny's been a friend of the show for a long time, so we're always happy to see him happy. So it's good stuff all around, Kim. But uh, let's get down to the nitty gritty now, now that we got all that sappy stuff out of the way. Uh, <laughs> why don't you take us, tick the clock back a little bit for us and tell us how you first became a libertarian. How did you become interested in these crazy ideas of liberty? Probably started in 2005. I got incredibly frustrated with the Republican Party when it shifted away from classic conservatism to initially in the 80s, they went to more of a Christian conservatism. And then under Bush, particularly in the post 9-11 era, then they shifted to neocon. And that's not what I come from. I'm a Goldwater Republican historically. So, which is essentially Ron Paul before Ron Paul. So I got really disenchanted with it. I was bitching about politics to a friend of mine. He said, have you looked at the Libertarian Party? And I'm like, what are you talking about? So I ended up Googling them and read the platform. And I said, oh my God, these people are speaking my language. So that's the first time that I shifted political parties, but I didn't get proper involved in the party itself until 2009 when I graduated from Arizona State University. I had dual baccalaureates in communication and political science, and I wanted to use that education and my experience working to leverage it for a job either as a, in a think tank or a magazine like Reason, something. So I carpet bombed every single libertarian-based anything. And the only organization that bit was the Arizona uh, Libertarian Party. Michael Kilsky, who was the then chair, contacted me and said, I got your resume. This looks great. We'd love to have you. And I was like, that's awesome what do you need me to do? And how much does it pay? And he's like, nothing. <laughs> how much does it pay? How yeah, adorable. I know. Right. So young. So young so naive. and naive. <laughs> so we'll start at like six figures, I guess, and go from there. Right. Yeah. So, and as it turns out, as anyone who has been boots on the ground knows, it costs a lot. Like you end up spending an enormous amount of your own money as well as time and energy doing what you do. So yeah, I've never been paid for anything. <laughs> In the libertarian sphere, anyway. I assume you've been paid for other things in life. Oh, yeah. No, I work in manufacturing, <laughs> and that's how I pay my bills. So, 
Gotcha. So I'm kind of curious, you know, you, you before joining the Libertarian Party and finding those ideas, you mentioned you were a Republican and maybe had more of those classically liberal ideas. How did your philosophy shift at all once becoming more a part of the Libertarian Party and being surrounded by all these wacky libertarians who just come out and work for free and spend their own time and money to to sweat away on campaigns that have very little chance of winning? <laughs> <laughs> Initially, the, the first gig I got outside of editing the newsletter for the Arizona Libertarian Party was I was asked to be a campaign manager for a congressional candidate. His name is Nick Coons, and he's a pretty big deal out here in Arizona, and he is somewhat well-known nationally because he hosted the Libertarian Solution for a while. But he ran for Congress against Harry Mitchell in Congressional District 3, who is a Democratic incumbent. So I worked for him, and in talking to him, you know, we'd go to events or whatever. Afterward, we'd hang out and just shoot the breeze. I was a minarchist. He was an unabashed anarchist. And eventually it got to the point where in our discussions and our arguments, I couldn't argue against what he had to say anymore. And that's pretty much how I shifted to becoming an anarchist. And here we are. So now you're taking your anarchist beliefs uh, straight into the Arizona mine industry, apparently. So (laughs) I have never even, to be honest, really heard of the position in any state of state mine inspector. So why don't you tell us what what is that about? What inspired you to run for this interesting position? I'll just say, because I've never heard of it. Obscure position. Is that a fair term? It is. It's very weird. It's a a bizarrely bipartisan position as well. Uh, There's only two points in to that whole position, which is strictly to educate contractors and miners on safety to prevent inviting MSHA, which is the federal agency, into the mines where they can have compounding interest and fees applied that could effectively negatively impact the industry. And then the other aspect is just to to go around Arizona and rectify all these 10,000 abandoned mine holes. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything truly political. It is strictly sort of a protectionist position to because our main our main commerce, our main form of commerce here in Arizona is mining. That's copper is one of the five C's of our economy. So it it has nothing to do with politics, but yet it's still a bipartisan position. And actually this is funny. The whole so I started the writing campaign and then you get all these solicitations from various social interest groups, you know, whether it's like the Arizona Catholic League or the Alliance of LGBTQ. They and have they, strong opinions on, on the minds? Well, <laughs> they, they wanted to know, like, what are your thoughts on transgender rights and what's your opinion on abortion? That having nothing to do with the position. <laughs> well, We're that's just a, curious. Well, that's exactly what I said. I was like, this has nothing. Like, what does this have to do with the price of copper? It, they may as well be asking like your favorite, you know, monopoly token to play with. Like it's, it's as, it's as relevant. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, one of the gals actually called me and she's like, did you get our questionnaire? And I said, yeah, I did it. It has nothing to do with anything I'm doing. I'm not going to be creating or making decisions on legislation. And she's just like, well, if you don't fill it out, we're going to post it on our website that you refuse to fill it out next to your contact information and people will call you. And I was like, okay, great. I love talking. (laughs) Like that's not a threat, sister. I would talk to them. Bring it. Yeah. So is your is your kind of view of this position? And I interviewed a guy, um, Dan Fishman, over in Massachusetts, who's running for the position of state auditor, which is really supposed to be like a neutral position. Is that kind of the idea of running for a position that isn't necessarily political? And maybe if you can get in there and show them, um, you know, I, I did a competent job here. Uh, maybe you can show like, OK, and by the way, I'm a libertarian, so maybe we're not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good question and a fair point. But actually, it's even 
a little more self-serving than that. The reason why I'm doing it is because I've worked for the past decade in manufacturing, specifically in steel fabrication that related directly to mining. So the criteria on the Secretary of State's website is that you have to have worked for at least five years in an industry tangential to, if not directly involved in mining. You have to have had X amount of years of Mining Safety Hazard and Association training, you have to be over 30 and you have to have, you know, however many years of residency. Well, I'm the only person in the Arizona Libertarian Party who actually qualifies for it. So it's good in two ways, which is one, I do qualify for it and I do know a metric ton about mining. But the other aspect of it is, is that it, because if I could actually lock it down, and I, I could very well do that if I actively campaign, it would be a really good in, a really good opportunity to have somebody that you could point to that's libertarian, that is an office holder. And it's more likely that I would get it because it just isn't a contentious one. Right. Good stuff. Well, we wish you the best there. And I guess at this point, it was a write-in campaign in, in the primary, I do believe. There's a bunch of libertarians that uh, don't – you didn't have ballot access, so you, I think all run ran write-in campaigns. And I guess at some point in the future, they seem to be dragging their feet a little bit. You will find out if you got enough write-in votes in that primary to actually be on the general election ballot. Is that accurate? That's correct. In the next couple of days, we should know definitively if we make it onto the general. All right. Well, we're pulling for you there. Thank Nina, you. We need a, if there's one thing we need, it's a good libertarian mind inspector. You know, I've, <laughs> my, I've always said that. <laughs> my God, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, besides the uh, the mind inspector position, you are actually aiming at a a little bit of a more prominent role as well. Like we mentioned at the top of the show, you did recently, and I believe not not very long after the Libertarian National Convention convened, uh, you did announce that you were running for president for the Libertarian Party's nomination for president. So, what inspired this? Was this something that had been kind of brewing for a while? Did something happen? of the convention that inspired you? How did this all come about? Oh, after 2016, I was the communications director for Daryl Perry's campaign. And I gave a speech at the time during his nomination where I specifically said that in our 40 years of existence, we have failed to ever achieve that brass ring that we're always seeking because we're always trying to run these you know, watered down Republican candidates or something very modified in order to bridge the gap between us and the rest of the electorate. And in the process of doing so, we have a tendency to very much sacrifice our foundational beliefs. Now, it's great that we're making marginal gains. That's cool. But I don't even think it's fair for us to say that the 4% that was earned by the Johnson Weld campaign in 2016 is necessarily something that they did on their own. We had two totally despicable candidates running for the two major parties against them, it could very well have been that the votes that were cast for Johnson were strictly just a protest vote. It's not necessarily that they were the greatest candidates ever. So I figure if we're really just going to be shooting for the moon here and going out on a limb and running the risk of being crowded out of the entire discussion, what little bit of media attention we can get, what little bit of exposure we can get, we should use to speak unapologetically And boldly and loudly, the very essence of who we are and why we're distinctly different from the duopoly. And do so as an educational platform so that we can throw attention to down-ticket candidates who have a much higher probability of getting elected and encouraging people to get involved on a local level and participate. So that's why I'm running. All right. So your your basic stance is that our presidential candidates, the Libertarian Party's presidential candidates of the last... 
X number of cycles. I, we've basically run Republican, ex-Republican governors for the last, you know, three terms or so have not been radical candidates. They've not been candidates that have put their principles first. And you think that just hinders the whole real mission of the party. So why, why are you the woman for the job here? Why are you the one that should be out there spreading this message? What, what sort of advantages do you have, whether it's your experience in the party or just your philosophical beliefs that make you the person for the job here? Well, I do know radical principled libertarianism backwards and forwards because I've been in it for so long. On top of that, I know exactly what it's like to be one of the boots on the ground and how difficult and frustrating it can be. So I'm coming from the perspective of an an activist who is getting involved in campaigning, which is something that historically a lot in particular women have eschewed doing where we've not really wanted to put ourselves in a face forward position because for whatever reason, we're uncomfortable with the limelight. But I figure I'm as good as anybody else and maybe even better to some extent because I don't necessarily have the albatross of past behavior or, you know, disdain against, you know, around my neck. So... I generally get along with everybody. I'm not very dramatic. Just wait until they uh, they dig up your uh, your fiance's all his tweets and uh, Facebook <laughs> posts. Though, <laughs> well, Johnny is his own man. So. <laughs> You're gonna have to have some prepared statements ready just to defend yourself against uh, Johnny Adams statements. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll affect an accent and be like, "I love him." He's so great. <laughs> He's just dreamy, okay? He's so dreamy. I love Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Kim, you're, you're talking about the philosophy and putting that forward. Um, obviously, there's a million different issues out there that libertarians can focus on. Uh, some past libertarian presidential candidates have chose to focus on, you know, who bakes a cake and maybe marginal tax changes and or something like that. But I have a feeling you have some sort of bigger, grander visions of issues you'd like to push forward. So as a candidate, what do you you think the the top issues, the top priorities would be for you to hold out there, for you to hold high as as the issues that you want to you know show people what our principles are on? Well, at least from the perspective of somebody coming from a border state, immigration is a huge one for me. I know that there are some divisions of opinion between people who want closed borders versus people who want open borders, even within the Libertarian Party. But radical libertarianism is for open borders. And the way that we discuss that issue is not only focused on the fact that our current system creates second-class citizens and criminals of perfectly fine people and that have to fly under the radar and are exploited by businesses that take advantage of the fact that they have no recourse, but also the fact that we have a welfare state that makes it frustrating to current citizens and potentially desirable to immigrants. So you have to attack it from a two-pronged approach, which is we need to massively overhaul immigration so that we can streamline the process and permit people to traverse borders, these imaginary lines, unencumbered. And you also have to mitigate the amount of basically government benefits that we're giving out. So that's that's a huge one for me, having seen firsthand how that negatively impacts people both on both sides of the issue. And then I would say, coming from the perspective of somebody who works in manufacturing and has a family that owns a steel fabrication business and has been working in that industry for over 10 years, I think that I would really want to attack a lot of the rules and regulations that negatively impact small businesses in particular and the cronyism that's given to major corporations at the expense of potential competition by new start, you know, upstarting businesses. So I think that would be a major one for me as well. 
I think those are probably my two major ones. And then, of course, there's criminal justice reform. We have the death penalty here in Arizona. There are, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but there's an unforgivably large amount of states that still employ the death penalty. And to my knowledge, the only one that has the most humane form is Utah, where you at least get a firing squad. The lethal injection is a horrific way to die, particularly since half those chemicals that are utilized are illegal and you can't acquire them. So that you have people who aren't medical doctors giving people the wrong stuff. It's kind of funny because most people might, uh, maybe not most people, but I mean, some people might hear you say firing squad is more humane because it. I think visually it seems like, you know, when you're just looking at the idea of a bunch of people shooting someone, it, it maybe just seems more barbaric in some ways. But if you actually think about it, you're going to die pretty much immediately from that firing squad, whereas as you as you're bringing up here, there are so many cases of, you know, lethal injection is not what we think it is. It's not where you just get a nice little shot and everybody just goes right to sleep. There are so many instances of people literally being tortured, instances of people who live through the injection and are sometimes re-injected or sometimes they're not allowed to, but either way, they're going, they're suffering horrific, horrific things. And that's not even addressing the issue of whether it's moral to kill someone or not or what what have you. People have different philosophical views on that, but, you know, Lethal injection, I think that concept is is so glossed over so often because people just say, well, they just give them, a, you know, stick them with a shot and they die and everything's fine. You know? Right? So, yeah. yeah, they look so peaceful. It's like, well, yeah, because they're paralyzed. You paralyze them, but that doesn't mean that they don't and feel this inside. They're pain. burning. <laughs> exactly. It's it's really it's incredibly cruel and draconian. And yeah, as far as whether or not it's permissible, no, it's not permissible. Period. Like the death penalty is not something that the state should decide. So yeah, that needs to be gotten rid of completely. And then, of course, you know, addressing other issues that are are related to that, like uh, we've seen in the advent of DNA evidence how many people have been exonerated and you review the cases that they've been in and how it's just been such a kangaroo court. And it wasn't something where they were actually put through what should have been the Jeffersonian model of jurisprudence, where it was beyond a reasonable doubt. It was circumstantial evidence and people were locked away or put on death row for their lives. And it's just, it's not okay. That's not acceptable. Sure. There have been just dozens and dozens, maybe even hundreds of cases of people that were, well, some lucky enough to have to be exonerated before they were put to death. But there are people who have been put to death and later been found through DNA evidence to have been not guilty that whole time. So it really is a tragic system. Yeah, it is. I want to take back to one of the issues you brought up earlier about immigration. And, you know, you mentioned how, you know, the libertarian position really is open borders, but many people do have concerns about, you know, how you can have open borders and a welfare state. So where do you fall on the idea that like many people will take a very hard line stance and they'll say, we have to have closed borders. We can't have open borders until the welfare state is gone. And personally, that, that kind of seems like a dead end to me because I don't think the welfare state will ever be 100% completely gone, at least not anytime soon. So to me, it, it's like, so do we just violate everyone else's freedom of movement until this you know mythical time comes along so where do you stand on that i mean would in with in today's current economy the way things are would you have open borders today if you could even the way it is now or do you think that a certain amount of decrease in the welfare state has to occur prior to the borders becoming more open that's a really good question, actually. It kind of makes me think of like an audio mixing board where you go up in one volume and down right. in another area. We, Yeah, we definitely do have to decrease the welfare state. But because there are so many people who are dependent on it, it would be incredibly unethical and very cruel to just cease it right this minute. We would have to basically walk it backwards so that we don't just leave people out there in the cold. We have to 
you know, wean them off of it. But at the same time that we wean them off of the welfare state, we need to make modifications to our policies so that we aren't penalizing perfectly good people from having the experience of living in a country and being treated with the same level of respect and consideration that quote unquote citizens are. The truth too is that a lot of folks who are illegal immigrants or you know, whatever other term you want to use to describe them, they might get social security cards or they might get IDs, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are able to take benefits. And most of them don't even necessarily seek them. So when they work somewhere, they're hired on under this fake number or this fake identification. They are paying state income tax and federal income tax and Medicare and withholding. They're doing all of that, but they're not necessarily going to be benefiting from it because it doesn't reconcile with who they actually are. So that sometimes that argument about illegal immigrants having access to these benefits of living in our society, it doesn't necessarily hold water every single time. But yeah, to answer your question, the short answer, walk back welfare, increase movement of free people and do it in a commensurate way. Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton. And if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow podcast, striking the root every single episode. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. Are those dry, boring, run-of-the-mill political talk shows putting you to sleep on your commute or at work? Are you ready for some fun? Further blast off with Johnny Rocket is a Seattle-based podcast expressing viewpoints of free markets, voluntary exchange, badass music, wicked banner, and of course, drinking. The blast off doesn't shy from the truth, but always brings the party. Let's rock and roll, Raylene. Bring it on, Johnny. You can check us out at thelaunchpadmedia.com forward slash blast off. Again, that's thelaunchpadmedia.com forward slash blast off. Launchpad Media. Always launching ideas in your direction. All right, Kim, I want you to sort of create a vision board for yourself here for a minute. <laughs> Let's just imagine that uh, all goes well for Kim Kim Ruff in the Libertarian Party nomination process. Let's say that, that delegates choose you in 2020 to be the Libertarian candidate for president. What would a Kim Ruff campaign look like? How would you push Libertarian ideas into the mainstream, into the middle of what will be obviously a very very highly covered race, at least uh, maybe they might, might not cover third parties very much, but obviously you'll have D- Donald Trump there who's going to attract all the same attention he has for years here and um, against some either either I'm guessing it will either be a very establishment Democratic candidate or a very progressive Bernie Sanders type candidate. I'm not sure which, but either way, it's going to be hard to to grab some of that attention. So what would be your strategy there? Well, notwithstanding the fact that if I did actually get the nomination, I would probably cry on stage like Sally Field at the Oscars. <laughs> and, th- and then they, and, and the first thing Trump would tweet is about how you're crying on stage. Oh, I know. He's her. like, there's tears coming out of her eyes and other places. <laughs> and Lord knows where else. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think probably the best thing that I would do is I would launch a very aggressive tour. 
which is to make sure that I connect with all the people that we know in the party so that I get to go to the various areas that they're working and they're doing their thing and meet their people and constituents and find out about what their concerns are. Like what it is for somebody in a small town in Nebraska, what their primary concerns are and what's affecting them and talk to them, have a dialogue with them, see if we can use it as an opportunity for media and kind of use that as a launching off point, engage in dialogues and debates, you know, just basically just travel the country and try my damnedest to get as much attention on the message and on our down ticket candidates. So I don't know, you know, somebody asked me in another interview what I thought about getting in the debates. And, you know, if last if last go is indicia of what I can expect this go, I think it's highly unlikely that we would get in the debate. So let's stage our own. Let's debate everybody. I'll I'll debate anyone at any time, <laughs> anywhere. I don't care. And so, I'll host any debate anytime, anywhere. So we might have something brewing here. Oh, good deal. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, have you ever noticed that? Like in the Libertarian Party, it's always the guys where they're like, tonight, like Sunday, 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 so-and-so <laughs> debates so-and-so and the great Kentucky douche off. And I'm like, <laughs> the women never do that. So maybe I'll start doing that. <laughs> the great Kentucky douche off. That's a phrase I, I really enjoy. Thank you. <laughs> uh, one thing you mentioned, Kim, there, and you mentioned that earlier as well, is the down ticket candidates. That seems to be a big push of what you would want to push forward as as a presidential candidate. Do you think that that is something that has been too much ignored or ignored entirely by recent presidential candidates? Are the actual down ticket? I mean, would you want to be out there specifically promoting uh, individual candidates? Is that sort of the, the tact you would take when you did, where you were, were able to maintain certain media appearances on the national level or even, even the local level in certain states? Absolutely. Yeah, that was actually something that was a real gripe of mine and many other activists in 2016 is that, you know, Johnson Wilds basically said, okay, we're going to get X amount of votes. We're going to get in the debates. We're going to bring, you know, Y amount of dollars back to the party. And we're like, that's great. You got it. <laughs> and then very few of those things came to pass. When they would go and make their various campaign stops, they would glad hand and hobnob with people that are Democrats or Republicans and sometimes completely ignore our down ticket libertarian candidates, which is not acceptable because if you're supposed to be, if you sought our nomination, you're saying, I will be a functional figurehead for your belief system and for your values. I believe the uh, then vice presidential candidate who shall remain nameless. <laughs> <laughs> the ironically even, named Weld. <laughs> yes, I believe he even donated to an opponent of a down ticket candidate in New Hampshire during his campaign. That's cool. That's yeah. awesome. So, yeah, let's not do that again. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we just don't do that. Maybe we start there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. I could everything's up from here. That's why our slogan's bottoms up. <laughs> uh, so, something else. I mean, I hate to keep bringing it up, but I, I just can't get this visual out of my mind. Would you do you think you would have Johnny Adams out there stumping for you on the campaign trail? <laughs> <laughs> I'm picturing big rallies. I'm picturing him rolling up on a motorcycle, rolling up right on the stage. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Oh, bless it's not a real question. You don't have to answer it. We can just no, no, no. I will. I love it. He's so sweet. He uh, bless his soul. He said, "He's like if anybody f's with you, Kim, I'll fight him." And I was like, "Honey, I don't think you need to do that." (laughs) I don't think it's going to come down to that, but I do appreciate. Thank you. I appreciate it. I got this. Oh, he's so sweet. Yeah. You know, if he does, I would I would like him to at least go out and show his comic book because it's totally awesome. Hell yeah. Liberty Force is great. Yeah, it's really good. So 
This is a free ad for it. Check out Liberty Force, folks. I'll link to it in today's show notes. There you go. <laughs> um, Kim, I want to continue on just a little bit under the vision quest here, visioning what this campaign would look like. Let's say not only did you achieve the Libertarian Party's nomination, not only did you gain media attention, but somehow you gained so much media attention that you actually won the whole damn thing. So what does day one of a Kimberly Ruff Libertarian presidency look like? Okay, well, notwithstanding the fact that I'm going to cry like Sally Field at the yeah, Oscars. Yeah, she'll definitely be crying. We've established that. The White House is going to be you know, stocked full of tissues and, and that sort of thing. So oh, that's, that's actually, I guess, act number one, order more tissues. Yeah, right. <laughs> act one. <laughs> no, I think probably the first thing I would do, I joked about this. I don't know if it would actually come to pass, but I said I had the beer and pizza plan which was if I actually got into office, I would entreat all of the people that have been working both in the party and in the wider liberty movement to come to Washington, help us sort out various different things and take down the system. I mean, we're not going to burn it to the ground, but figure out meaningful, measurable ways that we can walk the Leviathan. The, 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 Having, <laughs> I'm having a stroke, apparently. I'm like, oh my God, what if I won? Anyway, <laughs> to, to basically break down the Leviathan of the state in a systematic, healthy, rational way. And when I say healthy and rational, I mean recognizing that everyone in our country has been indoctrinated into a system of progressivism and is in some way, shape, or form codependent on the state. It's ingrained in their thinking that the state is that, you know, it's not only necessary, but oftentimes is good. And that they many people either work for or directly benefit from the existence of it. So it's going to be a long haul process going backwards. But I would have them all come, fill them out in various different positions and be like, here's your job. Your job is to look at what your department does and figure out how you can just cut it down to size as much as humanly possible to the point of being obsolete. And in exchange, I will buy you pizza and beer on my own dime because (laughs) it's wrong to take a salary. It's wrong to use taxpayer money to essentially rule over them. That's incredibly jacked up. So it's, it's like moving out of a house. You invite your buddies over and you say, okay, if you help me get rid of these things... I'll give you beer and pizza. So, that so would you would not plan. take a salary either? No, I wouldn't, which is going to be interesting because I'm not sure how I would hold on to my current job that I need <laughs> while being president. But... During the day, Kim works in the manufacturing industry. Well, that's why the first Maybe. thing I would do is legalize meth because I can't possibly do all this <laughs> without drugs. <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's so many places where we could absolutely trim the hell out of it. It's just absurd. I mean, even if you sat in on a city council meeting, it's incredibly ridiculous how much fraud, waste, and abuse they do even on such a low level. So imagine on a federal level, like there's whole departments that can just get bent and we would be so much better off right there. It's really interesting you mentioned the city council thing because I was recently, just for the heck of it, looking up you know the L.A. City Council and what L.A. City Councilmen make. I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot here. If you had to guess what a Los Angeles City Councilman makes per year, what would you guess? Oh, God. I I couldn't. Shot in the dark. Okay. Well, I know that our city manager in Phoenix makes upwards of a six-figure salary. So I'm going to assume that probably in Los Angeles, which has a higher cost of living, that it's maybe like $150,000. Not bad. You're not too far off. It's actually, uh, I believe, $180,000 approximately, You know, give or take a thousand or two. Wow. 
Actually, it's, I just looked it up again. It's 184,610 right now as of 2015. Good God. Yeah, oh, yeah. And there's 13 of them. And as far as I know, I can't see any, I have not yet to find one productive thing that they do. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's not even and, the mayor. That's just a regular council. That's person. just the councilman. And then the, the more interesting thing than that is I looked up, I was kind of doing research into how they're funded and the amount of donations they get is, you know, between 500,000 to a million dollars each of these guys. So what value are they producing for? whom i guess i guess is the question and my answer is that it's likely not me no no <laughs> or anybody that i know yeah good god i mean what are they trying to figure out like what color you're permitted to paint your house pretty much what yeah, easement I mean, I you that. have to have on what your should property? we ban- what what should what lifts should we ban what you know what scooters should we ban what roads should we shut down all, all sorts of things anyway i could go on a long diatribe about the <laughs> la city council but that's for that's probably for another rant another time uh kim i also don't want to gloss over you did announce your uh, presidential run with a vice presidential candidate i believe his name is mr john phillips so why don't you just uh, tell me a bit about him how did you guys come together why did you choose him uh, uh, so early as somebody you wanted to make your your running mate, so to speak, your 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 chosen VP candidate. Well, I know I've known John for a couple of years, and he's just always been somebody who has been incredibly encouraging to other people in the party, but also the kind of person who would call out bullshit if he saw it. And he's consistent and unwavering in his own belief system. I have enormous respect for him, both as a person and as an activist. He runs for office. He participates in chairs. He's on the LNC. He's very, very active and involved. And he still has a lot of time to reach out to other people and provide assistance, both in word and deed. So he's a he's a very good man. And I I have a lot of respect for him. So yeah, that's why I I tied myself to him. All right. Well, Kim, I I did have a little thing I want to do with you here, but uh, I'm actually just going to be a big tease and I'm going to say we're going to do it in the bonus show, but I want to get your thoughts. We'll do a little speed round when we're we're done with this uh, main program here. I'm going to get your thoughts. And this is really just to tease people to join our Patreon. I'll be perfectly frank here uh, about (laughs) about many of your potential opponents in the uh, 2020 nomination. So we'll get your thoughts on that in the bonus show. Of course, you guys can hear that bonus show by signing up for our Patreon for as little as five bucks a month over at patreon.com slash lions of Liberty. But before we sign off here, Kim, I want to give you one one last pitch, your final pitch. Not that it's final, because I do plan to host uh, some debates uh, as as we get closer to the 2020 convention. Some debates between potential candidates. So I certainly uh, would be inviting you to those. But for now, your final pitch out there to libertarians and specifically potential Libertarian Party delegates that will be at that convention in 2020. Why should they begin to take very seriously the idea of Kim Ruff as the Libertarian Party presidential nominee? Okay. Well, I will say to them what I would say to anyone with regard to anything. If you listen to what I have to say, read what I write and observe my behavior, and you feel that I am the person to best represent our belief systems in 2020, then I would encourage you to vote for me. If you do not, however, I respect your decision to go otherwise. Well, that is a very libertarian way to put that. <laughs> I'll Do your own thing, but please anytime. look at me. <laughs> well, Kim, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you a little bit here today. I definitely wish you the best of the luck in, in your campaign going forward. I think our listeners are going to really like a lot of what they heard from you here today. And of course, congratulations once again on your, uh, your pending nuptials. Oh, Lord. Thank you, Mark. And before I let you go, Kim, uh, where can people find out more information about your campaign and uh, you know, keep track of everything you're doing? 
You have a couple of options. You can find us on Facebook at Rough Phillips 2020 for president and vice president. It's very, very wordy. And then we also have a website though. It's currently a landing page. I've been working on it in the after hours and that's rough, R-U-F-F as in Frank Phillips, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S 2020.org. All right. The great Kim Ruff, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We'll definitely be keeping track of your campaign, and I wish you the best of luck, and keep on roaring. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Kim. Roar. All right, kitty cats. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kimberly Ruff, who is certainly going to make things interesting in the Libertarian Party's presidential nomination process, which is uh, going to come up before we even know it. I'm telling you, the the interviews are already starting, as you just heard here today. I do plan to be uh, interviewing many of the candidates, hopefully all of the candidates, as they continue to announce. And also, I plan to host some debates. So we will see. Stay tuned for that. This podcast is, of course, the main place, the best place for all your Libertarian Party coverage, for all your greatest interviews, for all your current events analysis like you get with Brian McWilliams every Wednesday on Electric Liberty Land for all your criminal justice thoughts and amazing interviews that you get from John Odermatt every single Friday on Felony Friday. All great reasons to listen to the show, which you can do for free. Also great reasons to help support the show, help us continue to do what we are doing, and to, most importantly, grow this program and continue to broaden our reach. You can, of course, do that by joining our Patreon for as little as $5 a month and getting access to all of our exclusive bonus audio content. Head over to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty to check that out. Something I failed to mention at the end of the show is the fourth program that we currently have on Lions of Liberty called Candidates of Liberty, where we interview various libertarian candidates running for office around the country. This was due to an influx of demand, um, many of it from the candidates themselves. So we wanted to create this new show, which airs on Tuesdays, at least through the rest of October, and then uh, its fate will be decided after that. But please do, again, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a thing. And that is all I've got to give this week. Of course, members of the Lions of Liberty Pride, our Patreon supporters will be getting a conspiracy corner, hopefully later on this week, if all goes well. So be sure and stay tuned for that. And until next time kids live long and live free